The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John, in the 8th chapter and in the 12th verse. The 12th verse in the 8th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Then said Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Those who attend here regularly will remember that we began a consideration of this great and mighty statement last Sunday evening, and I indicated that I was constrained to call attention to it because it is one of those great sayings which, as it were in and of themselves, give us a summary of the gospel. Call attention on the very surface to the salient features and the essential tenets of this our Christian faith. And I indicated further that I'm calling attention to it because of the tragic confusion that is so obvious at the present time with regard to the whole meaning of this term Christian and as to what the Christian gospel really is. There is nothing that is so obvious about every realm and department of life at the present hour as this whole element of confusion. But it is most tragic when there should be confusion with regard to what is really the message of the Christian church. What is the Christian church to do here in the world? Well, I'm here to suggest and to indeed assert and assert as strongly as I can that the business of the gospel and of the preaching of the church is to hold men and women face to face with this blessed person who said, I am the light of the world. The world needs light. It doesn't need your opinions nor mine on politics or international problems or sociological problems. We can all give our opinions as everybody else is doing. The uniqueness of the Christian church lies in this, that she has a message to give and to proclaim which none other can give. It is a unique message, and it is because we are reminded of that in a striking and in a very forcible manner in this verse that I'm calling attention to it. Now it's a very grand and a very big statement. We were only able to touch upon it and deal with it very generally last Sunday evening, and we shall not be able to complete it this evening. We can simply take stems and look at different aspects of it, and thereby together receive the truth that it enunciates. But at any rate, let us remember this. Let me repeat this, and I'm going to repeat it, God willing, every Sunday night as I deal with this great text. It is Christ himself that matters. I, I am the light of the world. We haven't got a philosophy here. We are dealing with a person. And this person is even more important than his teaching. There have been many who have borrowed bits of his teaching, but they've never become Christian. You can like many things in the Sermon on the Mount and in other places without being a Christian. What makes a man a Christian is his relationship to this person. If we don't know him, our Christian ideas will never save us, nor anybody else. It is the person that matters here. I, 
Here is one who is always talking about himself. Why? Well, because the message is about him. And if we are not clear about him, nothing else will matter at all. And not only that, you remember, he tells us that it is he alone. I and I alone. That's the real translation of this verse. I and I alone am the light of the world. And I think I was able to demonstrate that he's entitled to make this statement. Greek philosophy had said it's everything before he ever came into this world, but it didn't help. Roman civilization had exhausted itself. It didn't solve the problem. All this had happened before he ever came. So he stands up and he says, it's not surprising. There is no light anywhere. He says, except in me. Now, I was considering to show you last Sunday night how this is true about him if you take the world in general. The whole world situation as it is this evening. And thank God we've got a message here about that. It is only the Christian who can understand history. It's only the Christian who understands the modern position of the world. Everybody else is obviously dumbfounded. Statesmen are bewildered. The philosophers don't understand it. They thought the 20th century was going to be the greatest century that the world had ever known. Civilization developing and advancing, knowledge increasing, travel becoming easier. Why this 20th century was to be one of unmixed bliss and happiness and peace. The world was to be made paradise once more. And yet, look at it. Look at it tonight. No, no. There is no understanding of the times in which we are living except in the light of this person and his message. And there is no hope for the future apart from him. But here there is a blessed hope. He's not finished with this world. He'll come again. And he'll rout his every enemy and set up his kingdom. And it shall stretch from shore to shore. And nothing can prevent the fulfillment of his plan and his purpose. Very well, there it is in general. But now, we've got to descend from the general to the particular. Because here we are, we're in this world, and uh, we're living in it, and we're involved in everything that's happening in it. And somebody says, well, have you no personal message for me? Have you nothing to say to the individual? Well, thank God I have. Listen. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. Then thank God, he that followeth me, the individual. Thank God for a message that reminds us on this day of crowds. That God is concerned about the individual. This is a world of crowds, isn't it? We're all thinking in the mass and in crowds and in great numbers. Thank God for a message that tells me that I matter and that I count. He. He. You see, the message of this gospel is essentially, primarily, personal, individual. And oh, the tragedy that the church is always talking about politics and about countries, and the individual is forgotten. And the trouble is in every country that there are so few Christian individuals. We don't want a Christianized society. It can't be done. What is necessary is that you should add to the number of individual Christians in society. Then you, they'll begin to exert their influence. Here's the great tragedy of the hour, it seems to me, in the church as well as in the world. 
that everybody is dealing with this question in a general manner, and it avails nothing. The statistics are proving that the denominations are going down year by year, one after another. Of course, the individual's forgotten. And we're all making our great and pompous statements on generalities. But here, says our Lord, I am the light of the world. Yes, but he, he, the individual, the individual matters, the individual counts. Very well, I say, let's come and consider his position and what our Lord has to say with respect to him. For it's very clear, isn't it? That there is something tragically wrong. Why is the world as it is? Why are we all as individuals as we are? What's the matter with mankind? What's the matter with the race? Why are people in such a terrible state and condition that they just have to crowd together to look at nothing? For well, that's what they're doing, isn't it, today? They simply want to see where the crowd was. In other words, they're looking at nothing. Now, what's the matter with people? Why do they do this? What's gone wrong with human nature? That men and women spend their days and their times in this extraordinary manner. That's the problem that's confronting us. It's a very desperate, it's a very solemn, it's a very serious subject. And here, of course, is the answer. There is only one answer to all this. It's the answer that's given in this book from beginning to end. It's the answer in this great word that we're looking at tonight. Once more, it is true to say, he and he alone gives us the light on this matter, on this problem. He gives it very clearly. And he alone gives it. Well, what is it? What is the matter? What's the matter with men and women? What's the matter with our society? Well, I mustn't keep you this evening with the negatives. I could do so, because, you see, they're constantly being put before us. The serious thinkers who are not Christians are very concerned, indeed alarmed, about the present state of affairs. And they're trying to explain it, trying to deal with the problem. So I must just refer in passing to what they're saying. Some of them would have us believe, you see, that this is just what they would call a kind of evolutionary lag. That the great process is going on. But that now and again you get this sort of delay, this kind of lag. We mustn't be impatient, therefore. We must realize that man has only just emerged out of the backwoods. And he has a good deal of his bestial past still clinging to him and hanging upon him. And that, therefore, we must give time. Well, I mustn't weary you with a refutation of such notions and such ideas, because the very people who hold that are constantly boasting, boasting about our great advance and superiority over all who've gone before us, and so on, and how we are rising and developing and improving, and so much better than all who've preceded us, I say. Well, you can't have it both ways. But the question is, surely at the present time, is there any evidence at all of this advance and development? Can we say that the conditions socially and morally and so on in this country today are better than they were 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years ago? What about these new problems that are rising suddenly? The juvenile delinquency and the violence and the theft and the robbery 
and all these things that are appearing in our papers. No, no, we are, we are, we are aware of a new and an acute moral problem. A rot has set in, there's no question about that. And the question is, what's it due to? It isn't a mere lag, you see. It isn't a failure in the pace of the development of the human race. There is a clear retrogression at the moment, and that is the problem that we are confronting. So the evolutionary lag doesn't explain it. And then others would try to explain it in terms of circumstances and surroundings and conditions and things of that kind. This, of course, is a very old explanation. You know, a hundred years ago, uh, the theory was, and they used to propound it uh, with great solemnity, that uh, the moral state and condition of the people was largely due to their economic circumstances. It's a well-known theory. They used to say poverty is the cause of crime. They say you can't expect people to behave decently if they're living in penury and poverty. Uh, poverty and uh, housing conditions and well, the terrible long hours which they have to, to work. Those were the arguments. There were the masses of the people, working from early dawn to late at night, no time to read, too weary, not having education as they should have, and, as I say, living thus on this very line of poverty. And we were told that if only we could get rid of these conditions, that the whole situation would be transformed. Well, of course, again, I mustn't weary you or waste your time. But it, there was an obvious fallacy to that whole argument even then, a hundred years ago. There was no need to wait for today to see how ridiculous it is. It could be seen even then, and you could see it like this. If uh, sin and vice and crime had then been confined to the east end of London, well then there would have been a good deal in their theory, in their hypothesis. But of course the actual fact was that exactly the same things were happening in the West End of London. In the West End, of course, it was all done in evening dress, not in rags, but the same things were done. And you see, then you take this problem of drunkenness, we were told it was due to this poverty and so on, and yet, you see, if they'd only listened to their own language, they would have noticed that they said that a man was as drunk as a lord. Quite so. You see, it was wrong even then. If you'd only looked round then, you would have seen that you get exactly the same conduct and the same failure and the same breakdown in all classes of society. You had the same conduct not only amongst these poor people and who were overworked and who had bad housing conditions, you had exactly the same thing in the members of the aristocracy, people who'd been to Oxford or to Cambridge. Some of the greatest scandals at the end of the Victorian era were amongst uh, your playwrights and uh, members of the aristocracy and... Uh, even higher up still, uh, to appear in court over certain matters, as you know. No, no. Even then it was obvious that this was not a matter of circumstances and surroundings and conditions. But of course, by today, this argument has become quite ridiculous. Because if you now read the reports of the meetings of the sociologists and the educationalists, and they've been having their conferences recently at the Easter period, you will, you will find that they have got up one after another and have said this. They say, yes, here is this new moral problem. The recrudescence of things that we thought we'd swept away once and forever. And they say, what's it due to? And they say quite seriously and solemnly, it's due to this. The problem is due to the fact that these young people have got too much money. See, hundred years ago it was because they were poor. It's now because they've got too much money. 
What else? Ah, they say, you see, our problem is the problem of leisure. That's the trouble. People today are not working as hard as before. The hours are much shorter and they've got this spare time and they obviously don't know what to do with it. They say, you know, our urgent problem is what to do with our leisure. A hundred years ago, sin was entirely due to the fact that people worked too long and too hard and had insufficient leisure. Now the whole thing is due to leisure. The same problem. Well, there it is. I needn't keep you. I'm simply trying to show you how justified our Lord is when he says, I and I alone am the light of the world. You go through all the explanations I could take you through them, one after another, and you would find that it is exactly the same thing. No, no. You don't have the explanation of the problem there. Well, what is it? Here's the answer. All these problems, all our problems, are due to one thing only. And that is man's wrong relationship to God. Now that is the case of the whole Bible. From beginning to end. And I want to repeat it. Oh, says so somebody, you're oversimplifying it. I want to show you that I'm not oversimplifying it. This is the literal, simple, actual truth and fact. Every single problem that is confronting the ingenuity and the minds of men tonight, whether they're the statesmen or the philosophers or the people who are responsible for local government or your educationists and sociologists or whatever it is, I say that it is the simplest thing in the world to prove in every single case that it is due to one thing only. Man's wrong relationship. Oh, God. That is the root cause of all our ills. Indeed, let me put it like this. The fundamental trouble is due to our ignorance, our darkness, with respect to God. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. What darkness? Oh, the darkness about God. You know, if men and women only knew the truth about God, they wouldn't be as they are. It is the trouble with every one of us. You know, the trouble with the best Christian in this congregation at this moment is his ignorance of God. It's the trouble with all of us. Ignorance of God. People say, no, what you need to do is to change your service, improve this or that. No, no. If only men and women knew God and had a consciousness of God, all these other things would soon be right. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. Knowledge of God. Of course, that's the great theme of the Bible, as I say. It's a book about God. It's a book to bring us to a knowledge of God. And this is men's primary and final need. Are we aware of this? Well, let us look at society this evening. Let's look at men and women. What do you find? Well, I see a group that doesn't believe in God at all, that denies his very existence. 
There are men who are delivering their opinions upon the uh, state of affairs in the world, and talking to us about the need of abolishing the atomic bomb and so on, that it's immoral to use it. One of them was speaking the other day, and speaking very strongly. He said this whole notion is immoral. That was his term, immoral. Now, what about the man who speaks like that? Well, that particular man doesn't believe in the being of God. There is no God to him. It's not surprising, therefore, that his wife divorced him for adultery. I pass that by. But he talks about the thing being immoral, you see. His soul, his righteous soul is shocked at the thought of using an atomic bomb, a man who can spit upon his marriage vows and be guilty of adultery in a foul manner and be condemned by a high court judge for the way in which he'd manipulated it all. But he talks about immoral. What's the trouble with him? The trouble with him is that he doesn't know God. For if he knew God, he'd be silent without going any further. He wouldn't use terms such as moral and immoral. It's ignorance of God. He doesn't believe in the being of God. Well, of course, there's nothing new about this, you know. There's nothing so pathetic to me as to meet people who rarely think that the whole mark of modernity is to say they don't believe in a God. Because if you read your 14th Psalm and the first verse, you will find that there were people like that in David's time. Some 3,000 years ago, David was able to say, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They were saying it then. They're still saying it. Here are some, you see. They look out at the problem of the world and affect a great interest in it. But of course they don't help us, and they can't help us. Why? Well, because they, 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 they're wrong at the center, at the very source of the whole problem. Men in his relationship to God, they don't believe in God at all. There is no God, they say. Let's get rid of all this religion, sub stuff, nonsense, dope of the people. And let's begin to use our minds and our understanding. They don't believe in God at all. But there are others who are in an equally parlous and helpless position, but they don't deny the being of God. In fact, they are seeking for God. Here is the group that's represented in the Bible by people like the Greek philosophers. They were seeking God if happily they might seek after him and find him. That was one of the most pathetic aspects of Greek civilization. You remember Paul in Athens looking round the city? And he was struck by the multiplicity of temples. God of war, God of peace, God of love. All these temples to the various gods and the people crowding in and offering up their sacrifices. But he said, the most extraordinary thing I found in your city was a temple with this extraordinary inscription over it to the unknown God. What did that mean? Well, it meant this, you see. They said, we've covered all the gods. The god that causes war, the god that can give us peace, the god that controls love and all these other things. And yet, having built the temples to all their gods, they had an uncomfortable feeling in them. They said to themselves, there still seems to be another god. And he seems to be the most powerful god of all. When we've pleased and placated all our gods, this other god seems to be acting and upsetting everything. Who is he? Well, they said, we don't know. Well, let's put up a temple to him. Well, to whom shall we say we're putting it up? Let's say to the unknown god. And they were trying to find him. They were trying to seek him. With all their thinking and philosophy, they made tremendous advances. 
but they never got there. They never found him. So the Apostle Paul is able to say quite literally in truth, the world by wisdom knew not God. They could talk about the absolute and the eternal. They could manipulate their arguments, but it didn't bring them to a knowledge of God. And subsequent philosophers have just been repeating all this. You see, the philosophers come along and they give their proofs of God. They say there is a a result, well, there must be some cause. That's it. Nothing happens without a cause. The pages of this Bible have been turned over. Yes, well, somebody must have done it. Effect leads to, back to cause. And they say, if you go back and back and back, there must be an uncaused cause somewhere. That's God. Reasoning it out, you see. The argument from creation, argument from design. Now, I'm not here to say that there is no value in these arguments. I believe there is very real value in them. But I am here to say this, that all of them together will never bring men to a knowledge of God. They can bring you to a knowledge of the absolute. They can bring you to a knowledge of some great uncaused cause, some great original. But that's not to know God. And that in the last analysis, you see, doesn't help you. Because it leaves you yourself in control and you have to manipulate your categories and your concepts and your thoughts. You are doing everything and you don't know this God whom you feel could help you if only you could find him and only come to a true knowledge of him. And that is the position of so many in the world tonight. They talk about God. But what is this God of theirs? Well, the way they put it is this, and it tells us all about their God. The man says, what I say is this, what I think is this. And his God is as he thinks. And his God is one who is only love, nothing else. He says, I can't conceive of a God doing this or thinking that. And because he can't conceive of it, he says, God doesn't. And he talks about God and about worshipping God. What's he doing? He's doing nothing but worshipping his own thoughts. He's worshipping some projection of his own feeling. You know, I have it in me, says the man. I've got a fundamental feeling, you know, that there must be at the back somebody or something, and he's like this and that. But that's all coming out of the man. And men disagree and differ in their feelings and in their thoughts and in their projections. In other words, my dear friends, we have come back to this once more. If you tonight are seeking for God... If you've got a feeling within you that the answer is in God after all. If you see the failure of every human ingenuity and every human organization. And if you're beginning to say why the answer must be in God. And the question is how are we to know God? Well I say the first step you have to take is to realize. That along this line of human effort and endeavor and human seeking. You will never succeed. And to me, the tragic thing is that everybody, anybody ever tries to go along that road. If a man tells me that he in this way is trying to find God by means of his thinking and his philosophy, I know that that man is already wrong. Why? Well, surely, he ought to start by saying this. If God is God... Well, then, obviously, he is so altogether above me that my mind can't encompass him. 
If I believe in a God, in one who is above and outside and beyond everything, can I claim to understand and to determine the nature, character, and being and conduct of such a God? I say that a man who tells me that he's setting out with his own mind to discover and to know and to understand God is a man who's contradicting himself. God is in heaven, we are on earth. I mean by that, that by definition, if you use the term God at all, you are thinking of someone who is altogether outside the reach and the ambit and the scope of the mind of man. I mean by that, that by definition, if you use the term God at all, you are thinking of someone who is altogether outside the reach and the ambit and the scope of the mind of man. Because God is God and what he is, men's seeking and searching can never be enough. But if you want a second reason, it's this. Along that line, you'll never know God because man is as he is. And he's not only finite, but he's sinful. He doesn't understand himself, leave alone God. He doesn't understand his world, leave alone God. He doesn't understand his fellows, leave alone God. By definition, the whole thing is impossible. Very well then, it, you see, it's because of this that our blessed Lord stood there before those people and said unto them again, I, and I alone, am the light of the world. I am, he says, the only light upon God. My dear friend, if you and I are to know God, there's only one way. God must reveal himself. Man cannot arrive at him. Can a man by searching find out God, says Job? What a wonderful question. Oh, that men had paid heed to his question. There is a man at the dawn of history who had seen it, you see. Can a man by searching find out God? Of course he can't. He'd be equal to God if he could. Quite right, says Paul. The world by wisdom knew not God. Very well, is there no hope for us? There is. It was when the world by wisdom knew not God that it pleased God by the foolishness of the thing preached to save them that believe. What does that mean? Well, here comes in this great idea, this great category, you see, of revelation. By speculation, you'll never know God. There is only one way of knowing God, and that is that God should graciously be pleased to reveal himself. And the message of Christianity is that he's done that. This is Christianity. To say that this everlasting and eternal God has been pleased to reveal himself, to show himself, to manifest himself, and supremely in this blessed person, here called Jesus of Nazareth, who stood up and who said, I and I alone am the light of the world. This is the message. What does it mean? Well, you see, it means this. God has revealed and manifested himself in many ways. Yes, he is to be found in nature. You can't explain nature apart from God. You can't explain many of the most glorious things in life apart from God. He's revealed himself in those ways, in history, in providence, 
Oh, but we needn't stay there. We needn't stay or spend our time in the vestibule. Let's enter into the very center, into the glorious chamber itself. And there we are confronted by this person. If you want to know God, says Jesus Christ, come to me. I am the light. I will give you the light about God. Now then, you remember these passages we read at the beginning, I called your attention to them. In order that uh, we might underline what he says here, he keeps on saying the same thing right through this Gospel of John. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten God, as some would translate it, that is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Why did the Son of God come into this world to reveal God, to declare him, to lead him out as it were, to manifest him, to teach us about him? He and he alone does this. No man hath seen God at any time. Be careful as you speak about God. Poor Job had done a lot of talking about God, hadn't he? He'd been arguing with his friends, you see. And they'd been engaged in a theological and religious discussion, as we all have done so many times in which we've enjoyed so much. And we've said, I say this, I think that's as the other man, what God is... And they've all been talking about God as Job, but God revealed himself to Job, and what did Job do? He put his hand upon his mouth. He kept silent. He felt he was a fool. He'd been talking about God. He says, I'd heard of thee with the hearing of the ear, but now mine eyes see thee. And he felt unworthy. He became speechless. He dared not go further. Why, whoa, he'd now seen God. In that sense of the vision, God manifested himself to him in a very dim way. But here is the statement of our, of our Lord himself in so many different manners. No man hath seen God at any time. And it's a simple fact. Did you notice how he repeated all that to Nicodemus? And it's significant that it was to a man like Nicodemus that he said these things. Nicodemus, you see, is a religious expert. He is a Pharisee. He's a teacher in Israel. He's a very learned man. He's a very good man. And yet it is to him our Lord says these things. Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know. You see, Nicodemus, you don't know. You know a great deal more than the people. But when you come to these matters, you don't know. I'm speaking, says Christ, what we do know and testify that which we have seen. You haven't seen Nicodemus. If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall he believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Then listen. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man that is in heaven. What's he mean by all this? What he's saying is this, you see. Nicodemus, stop trying to understand. Stop trying to argue. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know. You haven't seen. Nicodemus, you've never been able to ascend into heaven, have you? And to see God. You can't give a report to me or to anybody else as to what things are really like there, what God is like, what heaven is like. But you know, Nicodemus, he says, I can. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Here is one, you see, who speaks with authority. 
What I read about him is this, the same was in the beginning with God, which some say should be translated like this. The same was face to face with God. Oh, this is what makes his message unique. That is why he's entitled to say that he and he alone is the light of the world, that he and he alone can give us light, the light that we need about God. My dear friend, while you and I may speculate and listen to the authorities doing the same and be at the end where we were at the beginning, here is one who says, listen to me, why? Well, because I've looked into the face of my father. I know him. I have come from him. I am in his bosom at this moment, resting upon it. I am with him in heaven, though I am speaking on earth. Listen to me. I am the light of the world, and there is no other. That's what he's telling us. It's not surprising that in the epistle to the Hebrews you find him put into a category on his own. God in the times past speak in divers manners, portions, parts to our fathers through the prophets. All right, it's of God, it's wonderful, thank God for it. Believe it all, but don't stay there that in these last days spoken unto us in his Son, who is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. I'm the light of the world, says this one. That's why I'm not interested in Hinduism or in Mohammedanism or in any otherism. I don't want them. Here is the brightness of the Father's glory. Here is the effulgence of the everlasting. Here is the Son. Here is one who's looked into the face of God and comes and gives me a report. I want no other. There is no other. That is why he said in the 14th chapter of this gospel, according to St. John in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You can arrive at the absolute without him, but you haven't arrived at a person. You can arrive at your philosophic X. You can arrive at the great uncaused cause. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And it's a Father we need. We are lost. We are helpless. We are forlorn. And we need someone to enfold us in his blessed arms. A Father. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But here is one who has come from him, not only greater than the prophets, greater than Moses, the lawgiver, greater than Aaron, the great high priest, greater than the angels who are but ministering spirits. My dear friend, what the world needs to know tonight is this, that the Son of God has been into this world. Here's the answer to the problem. That God has sent down his own Son, his own likeness. He and he alone can give us light about God. And this is the light the world needs this evening. What is the light he gives us? Well, he tells us that God is the Creator. There is a great deal here about the almighty power of God. This world doesn't evolve from nothing. No, no, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and all that in them is. God, the creator. This world hasn't been made by men, you know. Let's not be fooled because men can make these bombs. Let's not be fooled into thinking they can make a world. No, no. God made it all, men included. 
There is no limit to his power, no limit to his might. But you know, those are not the only truths about God. Look at the revelation that's given of his majesty, of his glory. Watch the way in which this person who claims to be his son speaks about him. Listen to him as he tells us about the holiness of God. When he prays, he says, Holy Father. Listen to him again. He's teaching men to pray. He says, Our Father. And then lest you think that he's a modern, indulgent father who winks at all that's wrong and says, Doesn't matter. Forget, forget it all. Everything's all right at the end. No justice, no punishment. No, no. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy. Just. Righteous. That's what he tells us about God. That he's a God who hates sin. He's a God who hates rebellion. He's a God who hates everything that has made such havoc of his beautiful, glorious universe. That having made it, he looked at it and said he saw it was good. It was called paradise. God hates this other thing that has come in and has turned it into the shambles that you and I know. God hates evil. He's a holy God. He is a righteous God. He is a just God. I'm not speculating about the character and the attributes of God. I'm simply telling you what has been revealed, what God has revealed about himself, what the Son of God, this man who says, I am the light of the world, what he says about the Father, the light he gives us on the Father, he has declared him, he's looked into his face, he's come down to tell us about him. He is in heaven. Listen to him. That's what he tells you about God. He tells you further that God is the judge of all the earth. And that the whole of mankind will have to appear before him in judgment. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who taught that. That he is a God who will punish transgression. The moderns don't believe the Old Testament. Jesus Christ did believe it. He said that not a jot or a tittle should pass from the law or the prophets until all should be fulfilled. If you choose to listen to a man calling himself a Christian who says he doesn't believe in the God of the Old Testament, well, I'm sorry, I can't stop you, I can't help you. I'm simply here to tell you that this blessed person who says, I know him because I've come from him, he believed the Old Testament about God. God will punish the transgressor. God is of, of such a pure countenance that he cannot look upon sin. The way of the transgressor is hard, he says. He told men at the beginning that if he sinned that dying, he should die, and he did die. It was God who turned men out of paradise. It's God who gave the Ten Commandments and all that has been added, that is added to them by the way of indication of punishment that is to follow transgression. This is all God. And Christ says, I haven't come to do away. Think not that I haven't come to destroy the law of the prophets. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. That is what he tells us about God. And surely this is the supreme need of the world this evening. Men and women are living as if there were no God. 
Each man is his own authority, does what he wants, does what he chooses. If he wants a thing, why not? He doesn't see why he shouldn't enter into another man's married life. If he covets that man's wife, why shouldn't he? If he wants it, why shouldn't he have it? That's the argument, isn't it, today? Are we not face to face with lawlessness running right through life from top to bottom? People taking the law into their own hands, acting independently. What I want, well, that's right and I must have it. All our problems, you know, are due to the fact that men and women don't believe in God. It's because they don't believe in God they don't observe his day. And they're turning a Sabbath into a fairground. It's nothing but the fact they don't believe in God. You know, it's rather tragic, isn't it? Why are men and women seeking for some new excitement, some new thrill, something to look at, something to talk about? Do you know why it is? Because they've got nothing worth looking at, nothing to be interested in. They don't know God. See, they see nothing in this book. They don't know what it is to pray and to talk to the living God and to hear his answers. And to have traffic with the eternal. Oh, I'm not condemning these poor people. God forbid that anybody should misunderstand me. What I'm worried about is that my heart isn't breaking more than it is for these poor people who are wandering aimlessly as sheep without a shepherd. You know, their trouble is they don't know about God. And they're seeking thrills which they can't find. It's because they don't know God. They don't know about him even. And they don't know him. And they don't know what they're doing. They don't know the fate that's awaiting them. They don't know where they're going. It's this appalling ignorance of God. It's the cause of all our troubles and problems. If only everybody in the world knew tonight that he or she not only has got to die but afterwards stand before this God in judgment. If only men and women realized that, you know, the whole situation would be entirely changed. If we only knew that when we die, we stand before that God and our eternal destiny is determined by our relationship to him and our obedience to him. Think of the things you'd stop doing. Think of how your life would be changed. Well, our Lord says, I am the light of the world. I alone can tell you the truth about God. And that is the truth about God. And there he holds it before us. But thank God he doesn't stop at that. But let's be clear about this. God is everlastingly just and holy and righteous. God is a God of wrath against sin. I am the light of the world, he says, and he means this. That is the truth about God. But it isn't the whole truth about God. I am the light of the world. I've come from him. Well, what are you doing in this world? Oh, he says, I am in this world to tell you also that while all that is true about God, God is also love and grace and mercy, and compassion. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in me should not perish, but have everlasting life. He says, I am the light of the world. What you need is to know God. And listen to me, he says. I'll tell you, and I alone can tell you about God. And so he puts it like this. He who hath seen me, hath seen the Father. Would you like to know God? 
Would you like to come under God's blessing? Do you see that this is your supreme need? Well, you say, what is he like? Well, I'll tell you. Look at this person. Look at Jesus Christ. He who hath seen me hath seen the Father. Well, look at him and what do you see? Well, this is what I see. Compassion. Our Lord, you see, looked out upon men and women in Jerusalem very much as you and I look upon these poor crowds of people in this city today. And what did he say? He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And he felt sorry for them. He had compassion upon them. He says they're at the mercy of the world and the flesh and the devil. There's nobody to protect them. There's nobody to give them food. They want a shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I've come into the world because of that. He had an eye of compassion. He never passed the case of suffering, you know. You see him one afternoon crowded by a great throng of people. He was on his way to heal the daughter of Jairus. But here he is thronged by such a crowd he could scarcely move. Suddenly he felt something was tugging at the back of his gown. And there was a poor woman with a desperate and terrible need. Just touched the hem of his garment. He didn't brush her aside. He didn't say, I'm too busy, I must get on. No, no, he stopped, he dealt with her. Why? Well, though he's the light of the world, he says, he, the individual, he was aware of this one woman in the thronging mob and mass. And this is the marvelous thing to me. He tells us that God is like that. The God who said, let there be light, and there was light. is a God who is interested in the humblest individual. Or we, of course, in our cleverness, we are only interested in the world situation. We don't like a personal, individualistic, evangelistic gospel. No, no. We want world statements. We want to know what a man thinks about South Africa, or about bombs, or the, oh, the big things, the great world situation. Thank God that God isn't like us. He that believeth in me. Who touched my garment? He's interested in the individual. And though he's there on the cross on, on Calvary's hill, bearing the load of the guilt of the world's sin, he's got time to talk to this poor thief on his left hand who asks him a question. He ministers to him in his agony. Oh, he says, he who hath seen me hath seen the Father. Yes, and what you see is compassion and tenderness and long-suffering. Yes, you see, the publicans and sinners drew nigh unto him. And the Pharisees were shocked and appalled. Fancy receiving such people, but he did receive them. The harlots, the prostitutes, they came to him. He allowed one of them to wash his feet with her tears and to wipe it with her hair. That's what God is like, he says. He who hath seen me hath seen the Father, a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of tenderness, compassion, long-suffering, a God that though the whole universe is as nothing to him, and he can live without it. He is nevertheless prepared to look at us one by one. He is interested in us one by one. And if we believe in him and give ourselves to him and belong to him, assures us that the very hairs of our head are all numbered. Thank God for this light. I don't find the absolute of great help to me when I'm tempted sorely or when I sin. Or when I'm lying on my deathbed, don't talk to me about an absolute. I want someone. I want a person. And the whole world needs to know God. 
And you'll never know God except in Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, but thank God by him you can find him. You can know God. You can know your sins forgiven. You can know yourself accepted in the beloved, adopted into the family of God, become a child of God and an heir of eternal bliss. You'll have, as I said last Sunday, a new understanding of time and of eternity. You will be given a new strength and power. You'll be given the very light of life itself and blessings beyond your imagination will begin to flow to you. Have you seen, my friend, that your need is the need of God? To know God? To realize the truth about Him? Your terrible need of Him, the appalling result if you don't know Him, and the way in His infinite compassion and grace and mercy that He has devised and provided to bring us to that blessed knowledge. I and I alone am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in the darkness. No, no, he'll walk in the light of God, in the light of life, in the light of glory, in the light of heaven. My dear friend, make certain that you're in it. Are you in the light? Have you come to the light? Come this evening just as you are. Publican, prostitute, whatever you may be. Great philosopher like Nicodemus. Religious expert, it doesn't matter. Realize you're blind. Do you know God? Is God real to you? Your talk about him will be of no value if you don't know him. This is life eternal. That they might know thee, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent, turn to Jesus Christ. Look at him. He who hath seen me hath seen the Father. Follow him. He'll bring you to the Father. And having seen him, everything will be different. Life, death, time, eternity, men, God, everything. Turn to the light and begin to bask in it and to follow its gentle it's glorious leading. Amen.